Uh, so my wife and I have adopted a new rule in our house that whenever we want to talk to each other, uh, first we ask for a good time for them to talk. You don't just barge into the conversation. But whenever the person agrees to finally uh, listen to what's going on, you got to put your phone away. What we've noticed in our relationship, and you might have noticed this yourself, is that when you're just talking to someone, uh, what inevitably, inevitably happens when you have your phone, it's that slow neck roll down towards the screen. <laughs> and before you know it, uh, you'll be talking for like five minutes. And this is how you know someone's not paying attention. They'll say, yeah, man, that, that's just crazy. <laughs> and you're like, wait, what was crazy? Like, I just said, do you want Indian food? And you were like, yeah, I mean, it's crazy. I was thinking Indian too. That's just crazy that we're on the same. Same page. Uh, when you're distracted, it makes you really ineffective at what you're doing. None of us wants a doctor who's distracted while he or she is operating on us. Nobody wants a lawyer who's distracted when they're supposed to be representing you. I don't even want homeboy at Shake Shack distracted when he's making my burger. <laughs> distraction makes us really ineffective at what we're doing. But sometimes, distraction moves past even us being ineffective and sometimes being distracted is downright dangerous. When I was getting out of college, uh, I was, came home for the summer and I was working with my parents and I was driving some of the same streets that I had driven probably about a thousand times. One time when I was driving, I was on my Nextel chirp. Y'all remember the I-95 Nextel? Y'all remember those? <laughs> to my young people, just know it was a glorious time to, to exist. And I'm distracted driving with my knees, and then all of a sudden, uh, a car stops short in front of me. Had I been paying attention, I would have been able to see that in the other lane, there was a construction truck that was parked right there. I wasn't paying attention, so I swerved, and I hit the back of this truck. Now, I was not hurt physically, fortunately, but my pride was certainly hurt as I had to sit on the curb while the ambulance checked me out because my car was an absolute disaster. I'll never forget the next day, my dad went to the auto shop to look at the car along with the insurance adjuster, and he came back in the house just shaken up. The way that car looked was so terrible, I easily could have died that day. Sometimes distraction will make you really ineffective at what you're doing, but other times, being distracted is downright dangerous in your life. One of the reasons we're doing this series called Distracted for this next six or seven weeks are we want to look at things in our lives that would cause you and your, uh, your relationship with God to go off the rails, that would make you ineffective at what you're doing, or even worse, things that are destructive for you and for your spiritual health. Now, it's really important to think about and look at the things that have you distracted because whatever has your attention in life, Whatever has your attention will determine your direction. What I need to know about you in order to understand how you are operating in the direction of your life is, I just need to know what has your attention. A few weeks ago, I told the story of uh, me going to listen to a sermon by now one of my mentors, Dr. Tim Keller, and he talked about the importance and the beauty of planting churches, planting new churches in cities. And that next morning, I woke up consumed. My entire attention was captivated by this concept of starting a brand new church. Every day, I thought about it over and over and over again. And eventually, what had my attention completely altered the direction of my life. Up until that point, 
I was working at my, with my parents at their law firm, and my brother and I were supposed to retire my parents. And I knew, uh, <laughs> my dad, he's still, he, he didn't retire yet, y'all, so he's, uh, pray for him. This is the reason, he, no, I'm kidding, no, it's not that. Uh, but that was the goal of my life, and then suddenly something grabbed my attention. And whatever just grabbed my attention completely altered the direction of my life. I left my job, and we started Renaissance. Now, that's good news, and that's also bad news, because there's also been other things that have grabbed my attention in the past that didn't lead me in the best direction. There was a, little, a girl that I met that she grabbed my attention, and she, even though it probably wasn't the best relationship for me to get into, I got into it. Now, all of us can probably think about things in our life, decisions that we've made, some things that we regret, something that just grabbed our attention, and then before you know it, that decision, that moment, altered the direction of your life. It's interesting. Uh, the things that grab our attention usually isn't really that good, but the things that we choose to give our attention to, even if they're not as exciting um, or glamorous, those are usually the best things for us. Our health is a perfect example. Uh, there are some things that will grab your attention about your health. I went to the doctor a couple of months ago, and I sat there, and I was all nervous sitting down as he put the blood pressure cuff on. And he was like, how much do you weigh? I was like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> I might have put on like three pounds from college, but other than that, everything is, is great. Homie was like, step on the scale. I was like, all right, let me just, uh, is that good? Is the weight good? Those things, when you go to the doctor, if you get a bad report, those things will grab your attention. But I have other friends who have chosen to give their attention to their health. One of my buddies that I was just hanging out with last week, uh, he's the type of guy that literally weighs all of his food on the scale. He's one of those guys. As you can hear the disdain in my voice, he's one of those guys. But yeah, but homeboy is in phenomenal shape. The things that we choose to give our attention to usually lead us towards success and thriving, but the things that grab our attention generally are not really that good for us. My hope today and my hope in the six weeks is that we would choose to put our attention in a better place in a, in a, in a way that would lead us towards life and thriving uh, in our relationships with God. Now, some of you guys are brand new to church. You don't even know what none of this stuff means, but I, I can promise you that whatever has the attention in your life is going to de determine the direction of your life. Let's just say God is real. Let's just say that Jesus is real and Jesus is good. What would happen if he didn't have the, your attention? What then would determine the direction of your life? That's a scary proposition for us to consider. Now, there's a scripture that we're going to look at today that is calling for our attention above all things. It's in Hebrews 12 and 2, and it says this one phrase. We'll unpack it for the rest of today, and we'll be looking at it a little bit. And it says, keeping our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12 and 2, keeping our eyes on Jesus. That phrase right there, keeping our eyes, is actually one word, which means to aim, to fix our eyes on, to keep yourself from being distracted. Now, a lot of times uh, we'll hear things like this in church and we'll think, what does it mean to keep my eyes on Jesus? Does it mean I quit my job, I stop going to school, and I walk around with the Bible, and I don't turn, I don't, I don't talk to anybody else? Uh, it doesn't mean that. When it says to keep your eyes on Jesus, it's not talking about exclusivity, that you only think about Jesus, but rather the order in which you think about Jesus. To put it in, in terms of relationships, 
It's not that Jesus is your only relationship, but your relationship with Jesus controls every other relationship. My wife and I don't argue too much um, as long as we've had sleep. And uh, if we have, if we, if we've been sleeping and like the kids aren't waking us up, we're good for like two arguments a year. Uh, when we're not sleeping, that joint is like the Battle of Gettysburg or whatever, the, uh, whatever battles were fought during the Civil War. Um, so pray for us, please, because actually we've been sleeping pretty good recently, so. <laughs> but there's something that nags me in almost every argument. When Jesus has my attention, there's something that's nagging me. As mad as I want to be, I'm thinking, yo, this is God's daughter. I can't just talk to her any other type of way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and even more, there's, there's something about what Jesus directs me to do, that even if she is wrong, she's been wrong once in the last six years we've been married, but even if, even if she is wrong, I have to treat her differently than I would want, uh, than I might want to in that moment. Here's what keeping our eyes on Jesus looks like in these moments. Jesus tells us in Mark 11, uh, 25, he says, whenever you stand praying, Pastor Jordan, when you go to say your prayers at night, my brother, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. Jordan, you ain't all that yourself, my friend. You need grace. Uh, the same grace that you need, you need to give to someone else. Now, if Jesus has my attention, and full disclosure, he doesn't always have my attention. When Jesus has my attention, he's not the only relationship that I have but that relationship controls every other relationship that I have. So when we're called to, be, uh, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, it's meant to aim our lives, our affection, our attention, uh, our obedience at Jesus and allow that to filter everything else in our lives. Jesus wants to change all of your directions. Now, there's a lot of reasons that we are distracted and keeping our eyes on Jesus is not the easiest thing in the world uh, the first is a pretty obvious one, is that we're just very easily distracted people. It doesn't take much to get your mind off track at all, actually. Uh, there's a scripture in Hebrews 2 and 1 that says, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. That word drift, in so many ways, characterizes what it means to live life. Oftentimes, the places you are in life you didn't make a drastic and radical decision to go there. You just kind of drifted in that direction. Uh, this past Christmas, my wife and I went to uh, Jamaica and uh, humble brag, you know what I'm saying? We was in Jamaica. I didn't even have a point for that. I just wanted to say that. No, we were, in, we were in Jamaica and man, the first place that we stayed was like super close to the water. And there was a couple of times when I didn't have any responsibility with the kids. And our whole family and our friends, we were in and out of the ocean multiple times a day. And I remember one time just going out there, letting the sun hit me, and just laying in the water. And it was like, yo, this is the closest to heaven I will ever be on this side of earth. When I would look up 10 or 15 minutes later, I was never where I started. The currents of the water started pulling me in a different direction. But here's the crazy part. I never even noticed it. I had nothing else going on in my life. And even still, I could never feel the subtle pull 
of the waves taking me in a different direction. Life is like that. If you do nothing, you'll drift away. If you do absolutely nothing, you'll drift away. If, you're if you don't make any intentional decisions about your attention span, it will drift. So we're, we're first taught here to uh, focus our eyes on Jesus. And this is an intentional act that we're being called to do. You're not going to just suddenly somehow drift and find yourself in a place of deep spiritual connection with God. It's not going to happen. So to focus our eyes on Jesus is something that we have to um, really pay close attention to. Uh, man, another reason why we get so easily distracted, it, some of it is just us, we just can easily drift away. Another one is, man, our culture is so distractible. American culture now, especially in New York City, there are so many things, so many things that can come in your way. Some of these things will hit in the sermon series that'll just distract you. One of the biggest challenges is us over-assuming or um, uh, not really understanding how much we truly can put at the center of our lives. Most of us think that we can manage multiple things all at once, and we really can't do that. In his book called Essentialism, uh, an author named Greg McCown says it like this about how we, what our aim is for and what is the first thing in our life and what actually ro rules our life. He says, the word priority came into the English language in the 1400s. It was singular. It meant the very first or prior thing. It stayed singular for the next 500 years. Only in the 1900s did we pluralize the term and start talking about priorities. Illogically, we reasoned that by changing the word, we could bend reality. Somehow, we would now be able to have multiple first things. People and companies routinely try to do just that. This gives the impression that many things being the priority, but in actuality, nothing is. We're often distracted because our culture bombards us with this notion that we can juggle so many things at one time, and we truly cannot. Now, another one, another reason we're so distracted as a people is spiritual. And if you're new to church and you're new to the Bible and you don't know what you believe about the devil, stick with me on this one. Uh, the Bible tells us that there is an enemy who walks around who is actively trying to distract us. Behind the screen, behind those emails, is uh, an enemy that's attempting to disrupt what God wants to do in and through you. 1 Peter 5 and 8 says it like this, Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone. Looking for anyone he can devour. There's an activity that we're being told is happening that there is a, a demonic power that's not coming with a red suit and a pitchfork, but he's coming to disrupt and distract what God is trying to do in your life. There's a scripture all throughout the Old Testament, and there's a phrase, it talks about uh, there are certain people who are like a city without walls. And that's a huge insult to be a city without walls. They talk about that in the context of um, ancient cities. If you watch Game of Thrones, you would understand that. The best way to be a barrier was to have huge city walls to protect you from uh, enemies coming in from the outside. And if you didn't have any walls, you were basically setting yourself up for failure. That means anybody could come and go whenever they wanted to. Now, I don't want any of us leaving today thinking that you don't need to do anything in your life. If you do, you're just setting yourself up to be distracted and for, uh, for the enemy to tear down uh, what's happening in your life. 
Uh, and when I was in college, we, uh, I played basketball, and uh, we had this one game that I will never forget versus Western Michigan in the big city of Kalamazoo, Michigan, uh, population 34 people. And <laughs> man, I will never forget this. The team was okay, but their fans, their fans were next level hecklers. I'll never forget, as soon as we got into the gym, like how coordinated everybody was and all their cheers. Not only that, but these dudes like literally studied you and were heckling you. So as soon as you would take off your warm-up and they could see your number behind your, um, the number on your jersey, they would just start heckling you like, Rice, why are you a political science major? That's an impractical degree. What are you going to do with that? And I was like, Dad, that's true. Like, it really, I mean, what can I do with a political science degree? I don't even want to go into politics. Why am I doing this? And the whole game, these dudes were roasting us the entire time. And your brain is focusing on everything else besides what you came there to do. When you stood at a foul line, there was a very hairy and very big man in a bikini standing behind the foul line, <laughs> dancing in front of you, trying to do what? Trying to distract and disturb you. See, the devil can't overpower you. He can't touch you. But he can distract you and disturb you. Too many of us don't have any walls up, and we just think we just go along with the flow of life, and we're drifting away, but we're being told to be sober, to be alert, stay woke. You have an adversary that is prowling around like a roaring lion trying to devour you. Now, I want to turn us to a scripture today that's going to phrase the rest of our, frame the rest of our time uh, that is meant to direct us, direct our attention on God, and to, for some of us to redirect our attention on God. It comes from the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. I'm going to read it and then pull some stuff out of it. It says, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This passage starts off in verse 1. It says, therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about from this text is the possibilities, uh, the possibilities of a life of faith. One of the most harmful things to your life would be to think that what God wants for you is not in your actual reach. Too many of us believe that there is a category for like three different Christians. There's like the really bad ones, there's like the average ones, and then there's Jesus Jr., like the super Christians who somehow develop everything. Hebrews 12 starts off by saying, therefore, based on all of this, uh, this amazing chapter before it, Hebrews 11, with all of these really normal men and women who lived by faith and what was possible for them simply by turning over the keys of their life to God, the moment you start to believe that the life that you want with God is beyond your reach, you've known that the enemy has really put, put you in a headlock. Uh, we read the scripture, and the first thing it tells us about the, the possibilities of a life of faith, and it tells us that there, it tells us that there are these witnesses, these uh, men and women, and that their lives are telling us what is possible for us. Now, there's a couple of ways you can understand the word witness. Uh, anybody who has been on a subway and someone passes you a track, a piece of paper that says, hey, uh, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go, heaven or hell? Uh, that's one way people understand the concept of witnessing. 
When the Bible talks about this, it's not that. Witnesses do two things. They see and they tell. They observe and then they tell what they have observed. Here's what the scripture is telling us. They have seen the potentials of what God could do through ordinary people who submit and turn the direction of their life over to him. And they tell us through their lives what is possible. Focus on what God wants for you. It is entirely within the realm of possibility. Now, I always, I always think about this, and I want to be really gentle with this. I know so many people have done things, and if we're being honest, some of you are still doing things right this moment that make it impossible for you to believe. They make it impossible for you to believe that God could do anything good in your life. That is a lie from the pit of hell. The good thing that God wants to do in your life might not come tomorrow, but if you've kept the direction of your life to this point, Turn it over to Jesus and see what could actually happen with your life. There are limitless, infinite possibilities to anyone who places their faith in Christ. Jesus is a better Savior than you are a sinner. So there's infinite possibilities to the life of faith. Uh, The second thing we see in the scripture as it continues, it says, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. We're told, secondly, in the scripture, to lay aside everything that holds us back. I don't run often, but uh, um, if I were to go for a run, I know what I would not do. I would not run in uh, Nike boots and uh, a vest weight because that by design would hold me back from actually running. The race of faith is similar to a marathon and is being told, and we're being told in, in this scripture, anything that's gonna slow you down, you gotta get rid of it. It's not going to somehow miraculously not slow you down. There's two categories of things that the author highlights in this one. The first one is sin, and sin is basically missing the mark for God's standards, of breaking God's standards for our lives, and we all break our own standards for our lives if we were to keep it a buck, let alone God's standards. And I was thinking about it this week. I was like, man, so how does my sin, how does your sin actually uh, distract you? Like, how does that actually disrupt what God is trying to do in your life? And some of you guys are probably a whole lot better financially than I am, but have you ever been around someone and you owed them money? Like, what does it feel like to be around someone and, like, you're about to order food and you know you owe them $10 and you haven't paid them yet? And you're like, I can't get the boneless wings because those are like $2 extra. They're going to judge me for that. What it does is it creates a wedge. Even though you're present in the room, you're constantly thinking about the debt that you owe them. This is, what, uh, this is what sin is in our life. What it does, it creates a wedge. It separates us by uh, we'll never be able to truly focus on God because we'll be focusing on what's keeping us from God. Full disclosure, there are a lot of decisions that a lot of you would need to make that are incredibly difficult. Um, but here's what I want to say. What God has for you is better than what you're holding on to. What God has for you is better than what you're holding on to. The second category is something that we don't talk about often. Most people focus on, on sin, but there's a second category that the author talks about is something called hindrances. And hindrances are uh, best understood as weights. So they're not things that are bad, but the way that they're affecting your life is actually slowing you down. There is a hindrance, there is a weight that all of us have in our pockets or our pocketbooks. It's your shiny, beautiful cell phone. It's the social media that you check 38 times a day. 
It's the candy crush that you can't put down. It's the email that you check every 13 minutes and you can't put away. We would be very wise to make sure that we are not a city without walls, that we have boundaries and barriers in place to make sure that the things that come into our lives um, are not just coming in without permission. Early on, when the church first started, I had my push email on, and I'll never forget one night sitting at the dinner table trying to be fully present with, uh, with Jess, and then an email came in, and even though I was sitting in a room, I was back at work. It completely distracted everything I was thinking about because... Uh, it just pushed its way in, and I gave it permission. Here's the crazy thing. Our phones go off so many times a day that if, if someone were to tap you on the shoulder that many times in one day, you would punch them in the face. <laughs> After the sixth time, you'd be like, bro, one more time, one more time, and word is everything, I'm snuffing you, bro. Now, our phones are a weight to us. They hold us back, and it's a couple of ways that the author talks about, actually, in this scripture. And here's, here's what I want to say before we even get into understanding social media and our phones. Phones are great. Your boy's on Instagram. Follow me, man. You hit that double tap on, on my pictures. I, I think social media is good. You should use social media. Don't let social media use you. So social media is not sin in and of itself, but it can operate in a, word, in a way that really does hold you back. One of those ways is what we see in in Hebrews. It tells us to let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. So we're being challenged to run with endurance. One of the keys to a life of faith is not just passion, but it's endurance. So often people come to church on Sunday to get passionate to hear a word, to sing their favorite song, to feel the fire, to feel like God was in the room. And passion is great, but passion without endurance is not going to lead you in a good direction. So we're being told to run with endurance. Endurance is long obedience in the same direction with many, many moments of unremarkable things. Anybody who's going for a long run knows that there are so many times on that long run where it is absolutely, completely boring. Nothing is happening. The scenery is, there's nothing interesting to look at. You're just running. And we're being told that the life of faith, the people who actually uh, live a life that are focused and fixed on Jesus, they're the people who have endurance. When I was in college, uh, in the spring, we had our workouts for our basketball team, and we had a, a guy who was joining our team later in the season, and he had never worked out with us before. And as soon as the workout started, We had a two-mile run before the rest of our drills for the day. So eight laps around the track. This dude, his first lap was like Olympic level. This dude was ghost. As soon as the coach says go, this dude took off in a full sprint. And I was like, yo, this dude needs to be running track. Forget basketball. He is amazing. After the first lap around the track, this dude just stopped. (laughs) And put his hands on his knees, and he ended up coming in last place. Why is that? He had all the passion but no endurance. What God wants to do in your life requires endurance. And here's how social media is so disruptive to this. There's a um, a computer programmer named uh, Tristan Harris. Uh, Tristan Harris became a whistleblower and left his job uh, in the tech industry to warn people about the dangers of our phones and what they're doing to our brains. Here's what he says. This thing... This thing is a slot machine. 
Every time I check my phone, I'm playing the slot to see what did I get. And there's a whole playbook of techniques that get used to get you using the product for as long as possible. They're not programming apps, they're programming people. Now they do this by two things. The first is called intermittent positive reinforcement. Intermittent positive reinforcement means sporadically, every now and then, you get positive reinforcement. You get a retweet, you get a like on your Instagram, you get a comment on something. And what this does is it actually releases dopamine and chemicals into our brain similar to actually using drugs. What happens as a result of prolonged exposure to social media is our brains actually start to rewire themselves to desire even more and more this positive reinforcement that we have been getting. In the same way, a drug makes you use it more and more and more, the same thing with social media. Now, here's what's so important about this with the respect to endurance. Social media is designed, billions of dollars are being spent so that you believe and your brain is rewired to think you can never have a moment of boredom. How do you pick up the Bible and read it in a consistent way when your brain has been programmed that you should never be bored? You read it for like three minutes and you're like, well, it didn't really do anything, so I'm not going to do it. Our brains are being rewired. It could be the games, the social media, email, whatever it is. It's being rewired to have constant, to be constantly bombarded with this intermittent positive feedback. And you double that, uh, you put some um, positive social uh, reinforcement behind that, the social approval on, on top of that intermittent uh, feedback, and man, you have an addiction. So what's happening is our brains are being rewired to say you should never be bored for more than three seconds. And as a result, the spiritual disciplines that are meant to form you, these things require endurance. They require that you do the same thing over and over and over again, and it will grow you. Let me ask you a question. Can you, think, can you remember everything you ate when you were 12? Can you remember anything you ate when you were 12? Elio's pizza, remember those little pizza breads? I'm sure you had some, I had some of those. We can't remember the majority of things that we ate, but guess what they did? They grew you. They sustained you. You might not be able to remember the majority of, or the majority of things that you have in approaching scripture might be really mundane. They might not fascinate you beyond uh, your wildest imagination. It might not be the most profound or prolific thing you've ever read, but it is growing you and it is sustaining you. We need to unplug and sometimes from social media so that our brains can reset themselves so that we can embrace boredom, so we can think. You know what your brain needs more than activity and positive reinforcement? It needs down moments to just chill and just to think. Every farmer would, knows this. There are some seasons where you don't plant anything on the, on the earth, not because it wouldn't grow something, but because by using that same soil over and over and over again, it depletes it of all of its minerals. And then eventual crops become weaker and weaker and smaller and smaller. If you want it to really grow, you have to give it time off. Our brains are the same way. If we want our ability of uh, reading and attention to, to grow, we have to give it time off. Here's what I'm asking you guys to do. This week, just for seven days, don't be mad at me, for seven days, I want you to not get on social media. Y'all acting like I asked for a million dollars. Can I have a million dollars instead? Maybe for you it's not social media. Maybe like, whew, he didn't say my thing. Well, your thing, the thing that you're thinking about.
Now, this is not meant to be permanent. This is not meant to be permanent. This is meant to reset us a little bit. And here's what I want us to do. I want us this week to read the Gospel of John. If you were to sit down, just in one sitting, you could read John in about 30 or 40 minutes, depending on how fast you read, uh, maybe an hour if, it's, um, if you're taking more time to read it. You can get through the Gospel of John in a week pretty easily if you want to. Here's why it's so important that you do this. A lot of times people approach the Bible because they want to memorize different verses. The Bible was never written, it was never intended for you to read it three verses at a time. It was meant for you to read it and get lost in it. Any good thing that we experience in life, they're not meant for us to just take it apart and dissect it, but to get lost in it. Years ago, I went to see Lauren Hill, um, the good Lauren Hill, before she went crazy, uh, before she was showing up three hours late to her concerts. And nobody goes to see Lauren Hill to dissect her, her work. You go to hear Miseducation. I'm trying to hit a whole joint. I'm trying to hear her go through the whole catalog to get lost in it. We're not meant to just read the Bible to dissect it, to memorize little fun facts so we can be nerds. We're meant to get lost in it because God has something for us in that. The scripture continues. Uh, so endurance is what we need more than anything. Uh, <clears throat> actually, let me back up a little bit. Hebrews 5 and 14 says this one thing. Uh, it says, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, this is an expectation we could have for um, our lives. If spiritual maturity is our goal, then constant practice is the way to get there. You're not going to, uh, this week, make uh, enormous progress that's uh, unheard of at any other time in life. Uh, but rather, if we continue to do the things that God is trying to use to form us, it will happen. Now, um, the next thing we see in this verse is Hebrews 12. It says, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and the perfecter of our faith. Now, for a lot of us, our, our phones are just always on, and this constant media blitz that we're consuming, it's impossible for us to keep our eyes on Jesus because there's so many other things coming our way. You might have intended to start the day one way, but then before you know it, uh, you're overrun and overcome by all of the things coming your way. The best way for you to do that, to keep your eyes actually fixed on Jesus, is to spend some time alone, phone down, and spend that time this week reading the Gospel of John. Seriously, please do that. If you want to know how you can focus your eyes on Jesus, actually focus your eyes and look at him. Look at his life. Look at what he's trying to communicate to us and pray. You don't have to understand everything. Pray that God makes the words alive in your heart and that God wants to do something uh, in you. Now, I really want you all to expect that God does do something good because really our expectations and what we expect from God will frame the way that we approach something. Too many times we, we think that coming to read the Bible is something that's going to be boring and it's going to be a chore that we just check off. And we're not actually expecting God to do anything in our lives. There's a, the way the scripture ends, it says, For the joy that was before Jesus, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's what we're being told by this verse. For the joy that was before Jesus kept him from being distracted from what was to the left and to the right of him. The joy set before you will keep you from being uh, distracted from what's to the left and to the right of you. And if you're not expecting anything good from God, then man, why would you have any endurance? Why would you have any hope of uh, or getting anything out of reading the Bible or praying or anything or coming to church? 
But God, we're told in Scripture, is so much better than our wildest imagination. God has something good for you. God wants to give you something good in having you come to him. Too many of us believe that God is this coach or teacher or professor or boss that we have to do things to please him, but not that God actually wants to give us good things. In Matthew 7, 11, Jesus tells us, if, you're, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does God want to give good gifts to his children? Uh, when my son first turned three, my oldest uh, first turned three, anybody who knows him knows that he is absolutely obsessed with dinosaurs. Uh, he is a budding paleontologist on his way to get, receive a full scholarship at Harvard uh, in their anthropology department. I remember how much he loved dinosaurs, and the first year that he actually knew his birthday was coming up, I was so excited to plan his birthday. Even though my wife and I were sleep deprived, uh, we stayed up late, and we put out these little dinosaur footprints in the hallway, and we hung up a pterodon, a flying dinosaur, it's actually not a dinosaur, but we flew up a, a hanging pterodon in the hallway, and we had a raptor for him uh, in the living room waiting for him when he woke up, and it was almost like Christmas Eve in my life. I couldn't wait for him to see all the things that I had planned and laid out for him. Here's what the Bible tells us about God for you. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart can conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. God wants to meet you. God wants closeness in your relationship. He wants all of these things. And you and I have to believe that God is actually coming to us with these good things in mind for us. Set that as a joy before you, that you and I can get God. You might not get everything you're thinking about in your life, but you and I could get God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful just for time to uh, come to uh, this church and, and share your word. And I pray that your word would do something in our hearts and it would lead us towards dependence and trust in you. Would you just let me pray? Amen.